and things go wrong so much with horses. Mm. You know, horses getting injured, riders falling off, competitions not going to plan. Mm. You sort of get used to the chaos a little bit, to be mm. honest. And you learn to roll with it. And um, and um, you know, it's, it's uh, it just becomes a little bit part of life. And um, you know, I think we've had a lot of bad things happen, but then um, you know, we've had a lot of good things happen. Mm. And there's always someone out there that's had it much worse than you and there's always someone out there that's had it much better than you mm -hmm. so uh, you just keep striving welcome to practical horsemen's podcast a show featuring conversations with respected riders industry leaders and horse care experts the show, which runs every other week, is co-hosted by Practical Horseman editors, and our goal is to inform, educate, and inspire. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and this week's episode is with Olympic eventer Boyd Martin. Boyd Martin is one of the world's leading international event riders and has had competitive success at every five-star across the globe. Boyd has represented the U.S. at two Olympic Games, three World Equestrian Games, two of which he was the top-placed American rider, in two Pan American Games, including the 2019 Pan Ams where Boyd won double gold with Setzerleg, or Thomas as he's known around the barn. This significant win also guaranteed the U.S. team's ticket to the 2020 Olympics. Earlier this year, Boyd recorded his highest placing to date at the formidable Kentucky three-day event, coming second with Thomas. Boyd has consistently been in the top 10 world rankings since leaving Australia in 2007 and has been on every U.S. championship team since changing his citizenship from Australian to American in 2010. Boyd was raised in a rural area that bordered a national park just north of Sydney that had plenty of space for riding. He grew up in a family that highly valued sports and athletics. Both of his parents were Olympians, his father was a cross-country skier for Australia, and his mother was an American speed skater, who, by the way, met at the 1968 Winter Olympics. Boyd played all kinds of sports growing up and always loved horses. After high school, he knew he wanted to make a career out of riding and moved to the bunkhouse at the New South Wales Training Centre, which he shared with 16 other riders to become a working student for Heath Ryan. Boyd rode in his first five-star at age 19 in 1999 and went on to win Adelaide four years later. In 2006, he shipped his horse, Ying Yang Yo, to the U.S. for a try at the Rolex Kentucky event where he placed 11th. He had trained beforehand with fellow countryman and Olympian Philip Dutton and later returned to Philip's True Prospect Farm in West Grove, Pennsylvania to work as his assistant trainer for two years before striking out on his own. Today, Boyd and his wife Silva, a Grand Prix dressage rider, own and operate their farm Wendura, USA, in Cochranville, Pennsylvania. Boyd competes nearly every weekend and coaches a long list of successful riders. He has become a sought-after clinician and in the off-season can be found teaching around the U.S. Boyd's work ethic has always been central in his life and is a big part of his success. When he was just starting out in Australia, in addition to his riding and training business, he sold school books for the family business, picked grapes at the local wineries, and worked as a telemarketer. Later, when he and Silva decided to move their business to the U.S., they had to start all over. And in 2011, Boyd had to overcome great adversity following a devastating barn fire where he lost six horses and the deaths of his father and father-in-law, which followed in quick succession. Boyd and his top horse, Neville Bardos, who was rescued from the fire, defied all odds and made an amazing comeback to finish 7th at Burley. Boyd says he's never had a plan B or fallback plan and credits that as the reason why he's been so successful. He just keeps grinding away knowing that failure isn't an option. 
Known for his wet humor and charismatic personality, I always enjoy working on projects with Boyd. When I spoke to him at his farm in early October, which is always flurrying with activity, he was recovering from a fall the weekend before at Plantation Field International and had bone bruising and a torn groin. It's not uncommon for Boyd to be injured. He's had countless broken bones, surgeries, tears, sprains, and strains over his career, and he addresses how he deals with that in this episode. Boyd also talks about what it was like growing up with two Olympians as parents, how he met Silva, and why they decided to move their business from Australia to the U.S., how he built his business in the U.S. and how it's evolved over the years, his training and teaching philosophies, how he juggles fatherhood with riding, how he overcomes adversity, and much more. But first, I want to thank this episode's sponsor, Dublin. Dublin is an authentic equestrian brand and was created by riders for riders who know what riders need, whether it's on a horse or in the barn. It's the little things that make a big difference when it comes to riding. That's why Dublin products are tested to ensure they not only do what they're designed for, but also make sure you look and feel good. With nearly 40 years of experience, Dublin combines its wealth of technological experience with on-trend fashion. Now let's jump right into the show as Boyd explains what it was like growing up in Australia and how he got into eventing. You know, for me, I was very, very lucky growing up in Australia. I was um, from a, a very sporting family. My uh, Both my parents were Olympians, so my, my dad was actually a cross-country skier for Australia, and my mother was a speed skater for the United States. So um, I grew up in a very, very sporty family, and it wasn't just horses, it was all sorts of sports. You know, I'd say sport was actually more important for our family than education, <laughs> um, which I know sounds funny to a lot. But, uh, you know, just thinking back of growing up in Australia, we, we just, our parents got us into every sport you could have ever imagined. And um, school sports in Australia is huge. Um, you know, one of our school sports was compulsory to play rugby in the winter and cricket in the summer. And then there was cross-country running, which I was very good at. And then we weren't far from the beach, so surf lifesaving was also a school sport. And was a member of the Long Reef Surf Lifesaving Club. Um, yeah, my mum and dad, obviously, dad was still doing triathlons. and uh, We actually grew up just north of Sydney. It's about 45 minutes drive from the Harbour Bridge north and sort of a little bit rural area where uh, we had uh, three and a half acres and uh, it was a place called Terry Hills and everyone there were sort of five acre lots and three acre lots and two acre lots and everyone horses were a big part of that area and it was sort of bordered right onto uh, National Park and there was all fire trails through the National Park and uh, my mum and sister actually got into eventing probably a bit before I started riding so I went to a couple of the events to watch them and and I'll never forget actually there was a, a, a pony for sale and there's a horse called Willie and his show name was Willie Do It <laughs> and uh, it was a 13 two hand uh, uh, Welsh mountain cross pony for sale for 1200 bucks uh, and it was on one you know where the scores are kept at the competition as at Lock and Bar and um, I begged mum to come to see if we could come try the horse and they, we met the people and they brought the horse out to the show the next day and I just hopped on him in tracksuit pants and just went straight to canter and just sort of galloped around the field did one lap of the field and came back and said we'll take him and 
uh, we put the pony on the on the trailer and took him home, and then I joined my sister and uh, to join Forest Hills Pony Club. Pony Club is huge in Australia, mm. so um, so yeah, on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning, it was about an hour to ride to the pony club. So I had to get up, get on the horse, and ride him for an hour to the pony club, and then you'd spend all day at pony club. Amount of games, jumping, sporting, um, then you tie them up to a tree um, and have lunch with your friends, and then all afternoon you'd be, um, <coughs> you know, tent pegging and popping balloons with spears on your horse, and um, and it was just uh, everyone from our neighbourhood had horses, and uh, then you'd by about four o'clock, then you'd hop back on the horse and you'd ride him all the way home and you'd get home just, just before dark <laughs> and uh, it was great it was a, a real community feel and you know, looking back on it there was I was by far not, not the best rider there by any means um, you know it was uh, just a, a group of kids and met those kids and you know you catch the bus to school and jump off the bus at school on the way home you know we'd get off the bus at three or four o'clock and then we'd Everyone would meet half an hour later on their horses at the end of Taronga Road, and then we'd go racing through the national park, racing each other. And yeah, so it's a, it was, and this was just another sport that we did. And um, my parents, well, I was very, very lucky that my parents were encouraging and supportive, and um, you know, it wouldn't matter if it was tennis or football or cricket or pony club or whatever. We were just um, driven to whatever. You know, my parents are just from one sporting event to another, and you know, and I, I definitely sort of fell in love with horses a little bit once we started eventing, and and uh, you know, I was a very good runner at school, and I was a pretty bad student to be honest. I was a bit hyperactive, and just haven't changed much. <laughs> uh, just going a million miles an hour, so I, I'm, you know, I was. Pretty obvious that I wasn't going to be a, an accountant or a brain surgeon, and um, you know, and it was just one of those things that towards mid high school that there was this understanding that this could actually be a career, not just a passion, you know, just a sport. And I loved horses, and um, so lucky for me, as soon as I finished high school, I moved up to a place called the New South Wales Equestrian Centre, which was a a uh, training centre for all the legendary three-day event riders and moved in there. I think there were 16 other young riders that moved into the bunkhouse there. <laughs> and uh, so the day after high school, I became a uh, working student for Heath Ryan. And did a, he had a special course there. And that was a great, you know, I was, I was, I was just lucky that I, I knew straight away what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I was also lucky that I didn't have... You know, about when I was 17 or 18 years old, I didn't have any any other interest. I didn't I didn't have I didn't even know about university or college. I didn't even think that that was an option. Or why would you bother doing that? <laughs> and uh, I was very very lucky just from the get go of knowing exactly what I wanted to do and enjoyed every second of it. I loved the hard work. I loved the camaraderie. And um, yeah, I was uh, I was in 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 for it and and uh, yeah, very lucky from from an early start that I knew what I wanted to do straight out of the gate.
Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, you mentioned both your parents were Olympians. Did you ever feel like any pressure from them that to kind of follow in their footsteps and kind of chase that Olympic dream? Um, to be honest, no. Um, I mean, I've got two very, very different parents. I mean, it's an interesting, interesting story. Um, I didn't know this until my dad's funeral, but, um, you know, growing up in our house, there was no trophies or medals or um, photos of Olympic glory or um, so my parents when my sister and I were born they they chose to take down all the memorabilia of their success in our house so we you know thinking back in our in our house in Terry Hills there was no um, trophies or accolades or certificates or anything that my parents had done there wasn't even any photos, Olympic photos or anything like that. So, um, you know, I think parenting is a huge, huge factor in a person's outcome. Um, so I had very different parents. I had two very, very hard-working parents. Uh, my mum, the American one, uh, is from Springfield, Illinois. She was very, uh, very competitive. You know, she was definitely... Uh, uh, she loved to win. She uh, she uh, was very very driven, and sport was meant to be fun, and it was so much more fun if you won. And, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget actually. I my mum and I, I competed again in my first um, preliminary horse trial, and I won it. And my mother was in the same class, and she protested <laughs> and uh, said that she'd been given the wrong time penalties, <laughs> even though her son had won. Like she was trying to <laughs> protest against uh, my victory. <laughs> Couldn't believe that. She down to Calcutta. Um, so yeah, I had one one parent that was uh, I don't want to say like the Tiger Woods parent, but like a pretty stern, pushing parent that was uh, I think. Um, a lot of good, successful sports people have that person driving them uh, forward. And then my father was a little bit different. I think he was uh, quite humble, quite quiet, a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is, but he was, he loved success, but he didn't, he wasn't rah, rah, rah. You know, he was very supportive and quiet and he'd shake hands if you won the running race, but he'd never make a big deal of it and tell you were a champion or anything like that. And so he was um, he was just as supportive and, and just as competitive, but in a much quieter, more humble way. Um, you know, probably, it's hard to describe, but probably a little bit more of a secret. Um, you know, he uh, was a highly competitive person, but not... Not on the outside, you know, he just looked like a nice, friendly guy that liked to joke. Where, uh, but then you, you saw him in his own sport. When growing up, he used to bike race and triathlon. I mean, he'd train so hard and, and uh, push himself so hard. So that was interesting growing up, you know, having role models like my father that was a little bit quiet but very, very hard working in his business. Um, he had a bookshop. Um, a family business which sold school books and I mean he'd just work seven days a week and from early in the morning to late at night and then he'd come home and get on his stationary bike and, and ride for two hours and just dripping with sweat and um, so he was um, good people to look up to um, so I was very very lucky in that department where I had um, 
two parents which I think were pushy in their own ways, one in a subtle way, one was a bit more open, and then also um, two parents that worked very hard in their in their business and then trained very hard in their own sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never looked at them as Olympic people mm-hmm. and I never, I actually didn't think it was that big of a deal. <laughs> you know, I thought it was a pretty cool story that my, my parents met at the Grenoble Olympics. Yeah, that's but so it's, cool. Like I'd never, I'd never asked them what place they came mm-hmm. or, um, you know, maybe later on I took, you know, they, when I wanted to come to America, my mum did the same thing. She had to leave her home and go train in Norway and then my father did the same thing. He had to leave Australia and pursue his goals in another country. And so that was, a, you know, it came full circle a little bit. But, you know, just, um, you know, I think the younger riders that come and work for me or that I coach, the majority of them come from a strong background of their parents. Mm-hmm. Um and that's there are exceptions to the rule. Like there's this kid that works for me at the moment that it'd be as competitive and as hardworking, as driven as you've ever find a kid in the world, and he's had a terrible um, upbringing. Mm. Like he doesn't even know one of his parents. Mm. So it's mm. not to say that mm. that's the only way to become a champion is to have a wonderful start with great parents. There's that's there's also definitely other ways. And then it's a it's a hard thing, you know, like growing up, I think we, um, you know, the hardest thing with parenting is do you buy your kid like the really expensive horse mm-hmm. and then they go win and then it gets boring if they're just winning all the time and riding poorly but still on such a good horse mm-hmm. or do you, you buy them a crummy horse that they have to work hard at improving and but then they never get the taste of victory, you know, like yeah. and it's a... It's something that I'm about to go through, I think, with the two kids yeah. I've got. Is, uh, I think my parents gave us a great balance of, um, you know, not, you know, we had pretty uh, modest horses um, and were successful. And then um, definitely there was one or two really nicer horses that we got when we it looked like that we were really taking this seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, you know, it's a, it's definitely a, a tricky scenario of how much support do you give your kid, and how much do you, do they have to fight for it and work for it and struggle and suffer to make it happen mm-hmm. themselves. And so it's a, yeah, it's a, tr- a tricky, tricky scenario. And uh, I think my parents just got it perfect, where they mm-hmm. gave us opportunity, but then we also had to grab that opportunity and go for it. And your wife, Silva, she's also an athlete. She's obviously a successful dressage rider. Um, would you mind sharing how you two met? Um, yeah, it's a good story, actually. Uh, so I was, uh, um, let's see, it must have been about 2002 or three. Um, I had just sort of started my own little business in um, Australia. And uh, it was a, I had a small group of horses that people were sending me and I was actually a telemarketer in the evenings, yeah, <laughs> selling uh, holidays over the phone. And uh, yeah, I'd never forget, I broke my leg, I broke my leg really, really badly on a horse. Uh, that's another story. And I would m- never forget, I had long hair and I was on crutches. And uh, I had uh, a rider called Kate Chatterton, who's now in America. Mm-hmm. She was helping me ride a little bit and she was riding some of my horses at a dressage show. 
and uh, and there was it was at Alexander Park near Newcastle, and then there was all of a sudden this new fancy imported German dress Grand Prix dressage rider that had come to work for this big breeding farm called Val de Jean. Um, and this Val de Jean was the the uh, one of the most famous or one of the fanciest sort of dressage. Uh, training facility and breeding facility. It was just down the road from the New South Wales Equestrian Centre, and um, Silva, Silva had her coach in Germany, Rudolf Zeilinger, said, "Look, if you're going to be any good at dressage, you've got to learn English." So he said, "Look, I've got some good clients in Australia that buy horses. You can go ride horses there for three mm. months and learn English." Mm. And so, yes, yeah, saw her at a dressage show, and and uh, I was on crutches, and I, I went up to her and said, "Look." Tomorrow's Sunday and we're going to the Newcastle races, the horse races, with a, a few mates and we'd like, to, we'd like to come and show you um, the horse racing in Australia. And she didn't know that much English and uh, anyway, figured out how to get her picked up and uh, it was an atrocious idea. We went to the races and uh, was a mate of mine called Nick Fife was there, another one, Benny Lynch. And we took Silver to the races and, and got uh, just drunk beer and gambled on horses and and then it got got terrible. Then we ended up in a restaurant and no one had any money, so we had to run away from the restaurant. Then we ended up in a nightclub and it was uh, that was poor old Silver's first experience uh, with Australian men. And I think I was the best out of the bad lot, you know, uh, considering. Uh, the, the group of guys I was with, and uh, anyway, we became good friends. And then um, Silva did her three months, and then um, she went back to Germany, and then she came back, and I couldn't believe it. She uh, came back, and we sort of teamed up and started our business together, oh. and um, yeah, sort of were together for a couple of years, and then uh, got married just before we permanently moved to America. And what kind of prompted that decision to move to the U.S.? That was a hard decision, actually. Basically, um, I think I spent, you know, I spent about eight, nine, ten years in Australia from nothing, you know, working from Heath as a working student and getting the hang of it. And, you know, when I, I rode uh, my first four-star when I was 19 years old, and that was... Um, a year and a half I started after I started working for Heath. So I really went from zero right mm. to the top of the sport on a horse called Flying Doctor in no time. And um, I was very, very lucky. It was a, a off-the-track thoroughbred horse we bought as a 12-year-old. Mm. And it just it was a jumping, galloping machine. And, uh, you know, we did a one-star. And six months later, did two-star. Six months later, did a three-star. And six months later, did a four star. I couldn't believe it, you know. And we bought him as a twelve year old that had never done an, an event. <laughs> Here's my pony club. And then, um, you know, once I got a taste for four star, then then I, you know, had to figure out how to then turn it into a bit more of a career. And to start with, uh, I couldn't um, earn enough money to make it happen. So I had couple of, I was the telemarketer for half the day for a bit mm. and then I was picking grapes in the vineyards in the mornings sometimes and then I was selling school books through the middle of the day for my parents' school book shop 
and then eventually you got get better and better and you could uh, then completely just do horses mm -hmm. and um and then silver teamed up with me so we had a good business where she was doing the dressage horses mm -hmm. i was doing with any horses and and for eight nine ten years that we actually had a good business going we had you know, we between us we had thirty horses probably, and we were going to every big show in Australia and New Zealand. Like we were, I was competing um, at Taupo and Puanui, and you know, um, buying and selling horses. And then I'd done every big event in Australia: Adelaide, Melbourne, um, Goodnewindi. You know, all the top three-star and four-star events in Australia, and I'd done them over and over and over and again, and I'd. And I'd won a lot of them too, so I'd been successful. I wasn't, I wasn't the best in Australia though. Like mm. I was sort of the, um, the rider, sort of just below the top guys. Mm. You know, there was riders like Shane Rose and Stuart mm. Tinney and um, Dave Middleton, and those guys were a bit better than me. But I was the sort of next bracket down. But I'd done, done. I'd won a bit. You know, like I'd won Werribee three day event, which was a big deal. And, competed in, in New Zealand and to be honest I was I could have we, we could have stayed there and done well but I was also a bit bored or, or a bit not bored but wondering how good I was or, or what else was out there and um, I had a young horse called Yin Yang Yo that that um, did Melbourne three-star three-day event and I think it must have come second maybe and then I uh, decided that I'd like to try Kentucky three-day event which anyone on the other side of the world I mean for us it's easy you put him on the trailer and you drive 10 hours down the road and you're at Kentucky but if you're in Sydney Australia it's a I mean it's a massive massive effort to get a horse to to Kentucky or Babington like it's a huge huge journey it's a, a massive expense it's going into the unknown and uh, but I wanted to have a crack at it, and it, he'd never done a four-star before. So, um, yeah, we sold a, a dressage horse really well at an auction, had, had the money to do it, and uh, put him on a cargo plane. I went with him, and uh, so my first uh, trip with the horse uh, to America was in a cargo plane. Stopped in New Zealand, picked up some trotters, and landed in LAX, and... Uh, he had to quarantine in LA for three days and I remember just riding him around the streets of LA. I was at this layover stable thinking, holy moly, this is a different world over here. <laughs> and then it was in winter, it was in January and then he f we flew to um, New York mm. and I'll never forget this poor horse. They opened up the hull of the plane in New York and it was so cold. like mm. just, And the horse, I've never seen a horse shake so much like when they opened up the side of the plane and and he looked out over the pallet and he, his eyes were just, he'd never seen snow before and he, he was shaking and <laughs> his horse, I couldn't believe it. He's like, what the hell? So luckily for me, um, a friend of a friend knew Philip Dutton and they said, yeah, I'll give him a call. You can stable your horse at Philip's farm and, and keep him at, in Pennsylvania and prepare for Kentucky. So came over, I think, yeah, six weeks before and, um, straight away, um, I sort of started helping Philip, um, like cleaning stalls and riding a bit for him. And he uh, gave me a place to live and then he actually started helping me with the horse and straight away I knew then he was a brilliant trainer and obviously he got a, a wonderful reputation of Olympic glory behind him and got on really well with him. And, uh, 
did Kentucky in silver and came over. And uh, and then I was just about to go back to Australia and um, I said, oh, why don't I leave the horse here and come back at the end of the year and move here? And Philip said, perfect, you can work, come work for me. Um, shook hands, went home, told everyone in Australia that we're moving to America. I had to sell everything, sell the refrigerator, the horses, the you name it. Like we had to, to, to get rid of everything and everything we worked quite hard for. We had a little apartment, we had to sell that and uh, kept a couple of horses, kept a horse called Neville Bardos and then Silver kept two dressage horses called Theopolis Thistler and Jeff the Chef. And... Um, and then we, you know, took us six months to sort of straighten all that out and uh, got married and um, two days later moved to America and Silver got stopped at the customs and said, you're not allowed into America because you you uh, applied for your visa here in Australia, you've got to stay in Australia. So, yeah, we got married and we didn't see each other for about three or four months oh, wow. until her visa came through. So. Wow. And then... Um... You worked for Philip for a couple of years, and obviously you talked about, you know, you guys have a great relationship. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what you've learned from him? Uh, I mean, he's an interesting guy, so it's a, it was a, definitely a change for me. I'm, like, the guy I learned the most off in Australia is a guy called Heath Ryan, mm -hmm. and Heath Ryan is, is, goes a million miles an hour, he's shouting and screaming and arguing with people all day, and working seven days a week till midnight and and I mean it was just a wonderful character he's a great guy he's, he's, I still look up to him to this day and a wonderful horseman like great trainer of of, an, of any type of horse a hot horse a cold horse a dressage you know just a brilliant trainer but larger than life like he'd walk into a room and and the room would go quiet and Heath would just start ranting and raving <laughs> a, a wonderful guy and then uh, moving to America, you get, you know, riding the indoor with Philip, and he wouldn't say a word all day. Mm. Like, it, like it was just not what I was used to or mm. what I expected. And uh, a very calm, quiet, uh, driven person, uh, wonderful horseman. Uh, again, could train any type of horse. Uh, wonderful um, the thing about him was how focused he was on the job at hand. You know, like he you know, only really focused on things that really mattered to his career, which was his top horses and then to making money to pay for the show. And, um, you know, great, great mentor, great trainer, great person to learn from now even, you know, like um, there wouldn't be that many people in America that are genuinely, genuinely making their money all from eventing and... Um, to, to pay for farms and houses and cars and um, in, he's been a wonderful role model there of how hard you have to work to earn enough money to really look after your family well and to buy the nice cars and the farm and the horse walkers and the mm -hmm. trucks and trailers and um, you know and it's something I admire I mean it sounds stupid but it's there's not that many people that are, are genuinely making a great career out of money earned purely from horses mm -hmm. and um, Philip's been a great mentor that way too um, and like as a competition rider I mean you wouldn't find a better competitor ever I think um, cross-country rider I mean it's just even 
today I'm a bit injured at the moment and he jumped a couple of horses for me yesterday and I mean he'd sit on any horse and make it make it go it's uh, um, and he's turned into a very very good friend you know on top of that I think we uh, had a healthy relationship while I was working for him where we weren't best buddies mm -hmm. and I think that's important not to be too good of friends mm -hmm. when you're working with someone and then after I started working for myself I think we've actually become better friends mm -hmm. and um, you know I hope he helps me out I help him out we're wonderful friends with his family and vice versa and um, you know, I just think he's going to be one of those people that you look back on your career and that really changed your life. And uh, very lucky that, you know, along the road there, I've had my parents, then Heath Ryan in Australia, and then Philip Dutton here in America, that, you know, some just key, key people that have made your life a different to what it could have been. Can you describe um, your overall training philosophy? Uh, well, it's changed a lot. Um, I mean, the number one thing, um, training-wise, you know, like when you're starting a business, you've got to take on all comers. You've got to you've got to fill your barn up. You've got 15 stalls that you're renting. You better find 15 horses to put them in, maybe even 16. <laughs> and uh, don't say no to anything. And when I say that is... Someone wants a uh, jumping lesson eight o'clock at night. You got to be there at eight o'clock at night. Teach a jumping lesson. You got to be driving home from Aiken on Sunday night from the show, and you got to be there at six in the morning to to, to work all the horses that didn't get ridden that day because you're at the show. And it's uh, you know, and um, you know. So the good thing with me is I think I uh, definitely just went for it. You know, when I first come to America, I would there would be nothing I wouldn't do. If someone gave me a horse that bucks and bites and spins and is a bit lame, but they wanted to go around the beginner novice at Stewart Horse Trials, I was your man, you know. <laughs> and I think having that mentality was a, a great way to get started. Mm -hmm. However, you've got to to be really, really good. You've got to evolve out of that, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think the hardest thing for me is to try and now. Um, 12 years later is say, okay, we've got the barn full of horses now. We don't need to be saying yes to every mm -hmm. single horse that mm -hmm. comes your way. And, you know, you can, riding, I rode 18 horses at Fairhill Horse Trials once, you know, and that was nine on one day, nine on the other. And there's no way you can do a good job doing that. Yeah. So now you say, okay, you don't need to be riding 18 horses at a horse trial. Let's, let's pick five horses for this show mm -hmm. and then four horses for that show and let's do a really, really good job. Mm -hmm. So you've got to, you know, training-wise, you've got to, to be very, very good, I think, is to not say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. And then also the attention to detail, you know, of, of really not trying to skip through everything and rush through everything. I mean, it's very hard, though, in this business. There's only so much money that's coming in and, you know, you know there's... Staffing's hard, getting the horses is hard and, you know, there's a day where I'm injured at the moment and then two of them are off at the show tomorrow but we've still got to work all the other horses so people got to understand mm -hmm. that it's going to be a long day tomorrow and, um, you know, and training-wise, you know, I think in a weird kind of way it's almost um, easier to get your business started training horses if you're a bit desperate, mm -hmm. you're a bit hungry and you have no fallback plan. When I say fallback plan, is there's no 
uh, trust fund coming mm -hmm. in. There's no secret um, money that's going to prop you up. You have to make it work. And it's a very comforting thing knowing, okay, I've got to figure this out. And not, but, you know, as I said, as time goes on to get really, really good, then you've got to modify that, that plan and say, okay, now I want to try and specialise in riding top horses. Um, I've got a great group of owners around me now. Let's try and select really quality horses, but not just buy horse after horse after horse. Training-wise, I think what your question is more is, is you know, I think that you know, there's a system of training I've learnt through Australia for 10 or 15 years and now in America here for 12 years of quietly you know, calmly chipping away at building horses' confidence up, mm. training them on, bringing them up, trying to give them a really good understanding. To do that, you also need the facility. You know, you need the, a good jumping ring, good jumps, good footing. You need a safe barn that's got good ventilation. Now we have a track here for a mile. It doesn't matter how hard the ground is, we can have the horses fit. Mm -hmm. All year round, we've got a cross-country schooling course in both farms now, but we can, if a horse needs to jump in two water jumps every day of the week, we can do it mm -hmm. without putting them on a trailer. It's a, So, you know, staffing's huge. I think that's one thing I've learnt from Eric Devander the last couple of years is having really, really top people managing the horses. Mm -hmm. Head grooms, uh, I think, are critical. Pay them more than you think you can afford mm -hmm. if you can find a good one look after them well yeah. <laughs> um, you know it's more than just riding a horse mm -hmm. it's uh, coming up the whole package I call it you know like mm -hmm. you need to be a rider that can um, obviously work ethic and riding ability or natural ability is mm -hmm. huge but then you've got to be more than that you've got to be able to select horses you've got to be able to find people to own the horses you've got to be resilient and be knocked down and get back up. You've got to understand how to get a horse fit that doesn't have very good feet mm -hmm. and how to feed a horse that gets hot and nervous in the dressage but mm -hmm. still making fat and shiny. And this mm -hmm. is all things you just got to have to learn over all years of experience. And um, I'm 40 years old now and uh, I'm still learning, still learning, but um, it's, it's taken a while um, to figure it all out. But I still also got a lot to go um, which is good because I think you know still got the best ahead of me so. and when you're teaching do you is there something that you work on the most frequently with students or something that you kind of see as like common problems that that your students have yeah you know, teaching is a hard thing um, you know I uh, the, the Number one thing is you have to teach someone differently. Like I was teaching uh, two days ago in Millbrook for the day. And um, you have to have a slightly different training or teaching technique. Say it's um, an amateur rider that, that wants to compete at a low level, um, loves the horse and wants to enjoy the sport. You have to teach them differently to, um, say, one of the kids that work for me, you know, that have that are considering dedicating their life to this mm -hmm. sport, mm -hmm. that have a horse that could take them to the top and they're trying to compete at a high level. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a different mm -hmm. way or a different system. You have to be, I think, quite um, definite um, definite, and a little bit 
strong and sharp and um, not strong and sharp, but more precise um, with t teaching someone that really wants to go on and mm. be good at this. Mm -hmm. And then obviously an, a um, lower level rider, an amateur rider, the thing is safety, I think, mm. and, and understanding that, look, you know, they jump probably 20 fences every week mm. where I jump. 2000 you know yeah. and of course yeah. they're going to not be as accurate as right. me and, and so you've got to be a little bit understanding there um coaching wise i think what i do just just thinking about it when i'm teaching is i basically would regurgitate what i would do if i was riding that horse mm -hmm. so say i'm teaching someone a cross-country lesson i would run them through the exercises that I would be doing on that horse if I was the rider. Mm -hmm. So I'd probably try and think of, okay, how would I warm this horse up? Mm -hmm. And then try and verbally tell them how to warm the horse up. Could then go to particular exercises mm -hmm. and then sort of imagine if I was on the horse and tell them <laughs> how to do it and mm -hmm. sit. So I think it's a it's a simple way of teaching, you know, and, um, and same with the show jumping and, the dressage. I mean, I'd do a little bit of dressage, but Silver would do most of the dressage teaching. And <coughs> I mean, I, I also get coached a lot, you know, and I think I get some great jumping lessons and jumping help from a lot of very, very good uh, jumping coaches, show jumping and cross country. And I think they definitely influence what I teach mm -hmm. in the weeks after they've helped me and mm -hmm. they'll pick on something that I haven't picked up on mm -hmm. and then that'll make a real impact on my what I'm thinking about and then I'll probably head down that way of teaching that exercise or that system of riding so, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and you've obviously had some amazing horses throughout your career can you talk about you know some of the most important ones or some of your favorites yeah I mean I'm so lucky I've had uh, just had some legendary horses obviously the one that got it started was the uh, Willie do it mm -hmm. uh, the next horse after that was Lenny's loss and uh, he had no front tooth. And a good horse. He didn't go on the bit, but a great jumper. And then after that was uh, Flying Doctor, who was, you know, I was 17 years old and uh, I fell off him when I tried him and he didn't run away. So my dad said, let's buy him. And uh, 1200 bucks. And uh, he did, took me around my first five star. Um, you know, going fast forwarding from that one, Obviously, the, the horse that won um, the last long format four-star in the world was a horse called True Blue Tuesday, mm. and that was a top, top horse. Um, and, I mean, I wish I had that horse today. He was just uh, an outstanding animal, a brilliant in all three phases. And uh, that one really, that horse, True Blue Tuzak or Tuzak as we I called him, he's the one that sort of got me to the top of the sport. Mm. That one was the one that really um that, that i've won the big i was sort of no one up until i won that adelaide four star and that was the one that sort of cracked me into the big time and then obviously um yin yang yo was the horse that i brought over from australia um and then the mighty neville bartles he was a he's still alive actually he's in my, one of the girls that work for me ride him every day he's uh again not a real talented horse but a trier and a real gutsy animal um, and just a legend, you know, bought him as a resale project in Australia and uh, 
Yeah, did did it all. Did um, Weg and Leon, uh, Burley, yeah, a couple of Kentuckys, good one. And then going forward from that, I've just then after after Neville, then I just I really got the hang of it all, mm. and then just had great championship horses. Um, so after Neville was Otis Barbote here mm. at um, London. Two years later was uh, Shamwari, Normandy. And then uh, Pancho Villa, I think, went to Pan Ams mm -hmm. after that. And then um, after that, we had um, uh, Blackfoot Mystery at Rio. After that, what was that? The WEG. Another WEG there with um, Sesta League. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, then again, the Pan Ams with Sesta League. Mm -hmm. So I've been blessed now with a, a run of top, top horses. And funny enough, the, the ones that... Uh, the ones that I fall in love with aren't the fanciest ones, mm. but the, the ones that try the hardest mm -hmm. and the real gutsy ones. I mean, the fanciest horse, by f not by far, the most talented or fanciest horse I've had is Shamwari. Mm -hmm. um, just unbelievable movement and great cross-country horse. Not the greatest show jumper, but good enough. Um, and I had some wonderful jumpers. You know, Trading Aces was a mm. brilliant jumper. Could have got sold as a show jumper at the end and... Uh, great horses like Crackerjack and Welcome Shadow that were just gutsy triers mm -hmm. and tough horses that went around the world. And um, yeah, so thinking of it, I've had a, a really, really good, good, good run of horses. And um, I think in my barn at the moment, I think I've got the best yet to come. So mm. it's, it takes a while to build them all up. You know, when you're selecting young horses and then you, you put them in your program, and it takes a few years to. Um, you know, build them up from training to prelim to intermediate mm -hmm. and uh, then they get hurt and, you know, and then one's not quite good enough and, and then one that you don't think is much good then all of a sudden blossoms mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. surprises everyone. So, yeah, I'm very, very lucky. Um, and obviously we've touched on this a little bit. You've had a lot of competitive success throughout the years. Um, is there a particular competition or, you know, success that's meant the most to you? Um. You know, I think it's all a bit of a blur now. I mean, yeah, every time there's a big competition, you, you get so dialed in for that particular competition, you think it's the last competition in the world. And I mean, at the moment, I'm injured. I've got a, I fell off last weekend, and I'm limping around with a bone bruising and a torn groin. And Fair Hill three day events two weeks' mm -hmm. time, and um, it's it's miserable, you know. And you think, oh my God, Fair Hill, I've, I've got three horses that could win it and this is the be all and end all and you know a couple of years later you forget whatever you know so uh i mean i've uh competitions obviously the olympics and wegs are huge for us and i'd even throw the pan ams into that i think uh riding for your country is huge um and it's also a moment where you really especially the olympic games the, the whole world stops and has a look at your small little bubble of a sport <laughs> Uh, so that's good. And then for me, the big five stars. I, I really thrive on giving my best at the Kentuckys and Badmingtons and Burleys and Poes and soon-to-be Fair Hills. Mm -hmm. That's what I really live for. And they, you know, I love riding them. They're the, the top of the sport. They're, it's so hard to get a horse there. Mm -hmm. And then once you get to that competition, it's so hard to just get around well. And then to win it is, uh, I mean, I've only won one and I've come second and third a bunch of times, but it's just, uh, it's so hard. And uh, I admire those riders that have, have won uh, 
again and again and mm -hmm. again because it's 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 truly truly hard to get a, a horse to that level and then keep it going for a long period of time and then you know these courses are getting so difficult now just to just to get around clear and under the time is a huge huge effort and a, a great reflection on someone's training of the horse and their their riding ability under pressure in mm -hmm. the moment. Um, do you have any sorts of routines before you compete? Um, or are you superstitious? No, definitely. I don't. I, well, I've got one superstition. I, um, I don't drink alcohol um, for, for about three months before a championship and mostly, f and again, for five stars. So, And um, it's been an interesting run like everyone. You know, to start with, I think I just did it because to lose a bit of weight and then to be honest I find I just feel better and sleep better and feel sharper mm. and more focused and um, and I it just it's something that's worked for me and I'm not a not a tea you know we're not I mean we go on the trips to the championships and the weddings and that and a lot of the riders will have a beer at night which mm. I'm, <laughs> doesn't bother me at all mm -hmm. you know but mm -hmm. it's just something that's worked for me mm -hmm. um, and it just makes me feel much more sharper and more um, focused and dialed in for a big competition. So that would be, I don't know if you call it superstition, but that would be something that, that um, and it's good for me. I mean, I'm a person of extremes, you know, it's all or nothing. And so it's a good good way to get a little bit healthy and sharp and for, um, you know, five, six months of the year not drinking alcohol over a long period of time is probably a healthy thing for me. <laughs> um, and then, so superstitions. And then routines, I mean, it's, you know, the good thing with me is, well, the good thing in what I do is every weekend I'd be competing. So I'm competing so much now that I don't really have to think or, it, I mean, I get nervous, but I'm so used to being nervous that I completely accept that feeling mm. of terror, take a deep breath, and I'm quite comfortable, and it's familiar, mm. you know, and it's not, it's hard, I think, for some people that only compete a little bit because that feeling's foreign to them, mm. where that feeling for me is every weekend, and, and I don't want to say you get numb to it, but you get used to it, and then you get used to being in control of it a little bit, and cross-country-wise, I think jumping you know, thousands and thousands of cross-country jumps every month, it, it becomes subconscious. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to think. And I think, um, you know, coming to around a cross-country course, I don't have to think to get my horse back to a coffin canner for the coffin. I, mm. I don't have to make myself look for a forward distance to a ditch brush. You know, it's, it's something that's now I've just done it so much for years and years and years, thousands and thousands of jumps that it's coming more automatically now. Um, and, I mean, I think with that, there's a little bit of a danger of complacency, so you've got to make sure that you're, that you're not taking everything for granted. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'll see the good riders slip up at something they shouldn't really slip up at, and I think it's that reason. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just, you know, I... I definitely think um, here at Windura, um, we work very, very hard, mm. you know, and it's something, the system I grew up with uh, working at Heath's and then working mm. at Phillips is we definitely um, grind it out. It's a mm. long, hard, grueling day. 
seven days a week, 12 months of the year. And um, the guys that work for me, I, I take my hat off to them because there's much easier jobs out there mm. and uh, they probably pay more too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they somehow I think they get, understand that the, the system we use works and um, produces success. And there's no way around the hard work. It's just I, I can't. I can't find a way of doing it without putting in the, the hours. And then it's definitely safe to say that you've had more than your fair share of injuries. Um, how do you kind of deal with that when you're injured? And then how do you bounce back? Yeah, I mean, I hate being injured. It's, um, it's just, uh, and it, but I've also accepted that this is just part of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think um, definitely the last five or six years I've had to start looking after my body a bit better. Mm. Um, you know, I would spend a lot of time and money on my body every week. So on a Monday morning at, at 6.30 a.m. I go to the chiropractor and mm. then she also then makes me strip down to my underwear and then she's got a, a class four laser and she lasers mm. all of my my hips and my back mm. and and it's freaking painful. Is that? Yeah. yeah. And so that's every Monday morning, you know, yeah. where most people are tired and sleeping in after the show. I've got to do that. And then I go straight from there to the personal trainer. And I work out with Linda Brown, who um, is, used to be a jockey and mm. works on my core strength. Oh, cool. And then, um, yeah, usually on Fridays we do yoga. And then, um, um, you know, at the moment, you know, when I'm a bit injured like I am at the moment, I'm getting acupuncture once a week, and and then I've got myself a bit of uh, exercises every morning. Like I get up and try and get down to the basement with uh, young Knox, and mm -hmm. I've got sort of 20 minutes of warming up exercises mm -hmm. and stretching and stuff like that. And, uh, just put in a, an ultra um, ultraviolet light. Um, sauna in the bathroom now so I sit in that and um, you know drink the isogenic shakes for breakfast and mm. try and you know try but I still get hurt you know and there's no way around of, of falling off and getting driven into the ground and I mean the good thing I, I don't think I ride as many bad horses anymore so and then I got um, one or two younger riders that do the younger younger horses which I think they're the ones you get hurt on a lot when mm. they're they're good horses but they'll trip or mm -hmm. spook or bump a leg or run off a jump and trip over and so I've got a couple of fit young lasses and lads that do them and <laughs> I'm on the ground shouting them. Um, for a collarbone or an arm or whatever I find they're easy like mm -hmm. they don't bother me too much it's a get a surgery or whatever and it's a week later you can ride well again but anything like in your ankles or broke my leg or my hip or whatever that's there on my back. I've had my back injected a few times. That they're the worst because you can't ride properly, mm. and then you're desperate to keep riding, mm. and you want to try and ride at the big competitions, but you can't. Yeah. You can't. So, I mean, it's just you got to keep reminding yourself you eventually get better, mm. and um, having good riders around you that can keep your horses going, and um, also keep reminding yourself that eventually you do become good. But it's a happens in slow motion you know, time time takes its time when you're hurt which is uh, it's not fun because whenever I'm working really really hard I always think wouldn't it be nice to be injured at the moment I'd be sitting on the couch and uh, whenever I'm injured I hate it I'd do anything <laughs> to be riding again 
Uh, and throughout your life, you've overcome a lot of adversity and you've had a lot of challenges that you've come up against. How do you kind of push through when things get really tough? I mean, uh, two things. I mean, I think your upbringing, um, obviously, it's a learnt behaviour. I think of when the going gets tough, the tough get going. And so I think from a very young age, growing up in the family I grew up in, I think um, you learn to uh, keep keep fighting or keep pushing on. And then the reality, because I get asked this a bit actually, the reality is I don't really have a choice. You know, there's no there's no fallback plan. There's no you know we have to we have to come up with large amount of money to pay our mortgage mm -hmm. every month we're in so deep now that there's absolutely no way out of mm -hmm. this but to work through it you know mm -hmm. and i'm quite comfortable with that idea <laughs> i'm quite happy with it and it doesn't you know we owe a couple million bucks and um it doesn't stress me out that mm -hmm. there's no um there's no backup plan there's no there's I, it's not like i could be I should be at university doing an arts degree, you know, mm -hmm. or, or one parent saying, oh, why don't you uh, take some time off and hang out at the beach with us? Or, you know, there's just, um, I, I, I'd like to give you an answer where I tell you that I look at myself in the mirror and pump my chest and, you know, have a cold shower and say, come on. But it's, uh, I mean, I think I just uh, learnt just to, I mean, things go wrong so much with horses. You know, horses getting injured, riders falling off competition's not going to plan you sort of get used to the chaos a little bit to be honest and you learn to roll with it and um and um you know it just it, it's uh it just becomes a little bit part of life and um you know i think we've had a lot of bad things happen but then um you know, we've had a lot of good things happen and there's always someone out there that's had it much worse than you and there's always someone out there that's had it much better than you mm -hmm. so uh, you just keep striving on I think. Uh, now that you have two kids how do you kind of balance your career with your family yeah I mean it's a it's a very very uh, interesting thing having a couple of kids I mean it's uh, definitely changed um, changed a lot here I mean the the reality, the sad part, no, not the sad part, the reality is I think it has a much harsher effect on the mother than mm. the father, you know, and I think Silva's career as a dressage rider, she had a, a fall and a brain injury, mm -hmm. which definitely really slowed her career up horse-wise mm. um, for a good year and a half. And then and then having two kids, I think, has really um, put, a, put a, a half halt on Silva's dressage career mm. and... Um, you know, for me, it's definitely changed a few things. I think it's, you know, you get caught a little bit sometimes thinking the whole world revolves around you <laughs> and it's, I'm the Olympian, mm -hmm. I'm the Olympian and I'm going to ride my horse at this time and then I'm going to teach a lesson at that time mm -hmm. and me, me, me. And then all of a sudden you've got a couple of kids and, you know, you go grab one from school or, and I think, um, you also don't want to be that sort of person that's so consumed in their career that you don't have the time to be a, a dad to your kids. So it's a, it's a been a hard one for me a bit because I think I was um, on my way up. I was relentless in in what I do to try and be as good as I can, and, and nothing else actually mattered. I think I just one hundred percent seven days a week wanted to be the best in the world. And mm. now I think if you have that mentality. Um, 
kids will hate you and you get divorced pretty quick. So I think there's got to be um, a moment where you have to try and get things wrapped up by, you know, hopefully by five o'clock in the afternoon so you can spend a couple of hours with the kids. And um, we're lucky here. We, got, we live at the farm. Mm-hmm. And so we've got a nanny that comes in at 7.30 every morning and takes over. And um, the kids, you know, Knox is four years old now and he's out there helping in the barn and, you know, running around the farm a bit. So it's, you know, I can be teaching a jumping lesson and he'll be climbing on the show jumps Mm -hmm. and spooking the horses. And, you know, (laughs) we're a little bit fortunate compared to other um, riders that Mm -hmm. their home might be down the road and they're trying to, you know, mum's at home with the kids and the husbands or vice versa at the barn riding mm-hmm. and you know we're we're pretty blessed but yeah it's a it's a funny thing and that you know I think it's very important to try and do a very good job being a parent and and, and um but at the same time you know I've still got um good 10 or 15 years of of time here where I could try and be very very good and I think it's important to keep striving mm-hmm. for that and then also and you know also do a good job being a parent mm-hmm. Do you have any hobbies out of the saddle? Not really. Not really. I mean, it's. Uh, I know that sounds a bit sad and sick, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's for me um, that my two kids, um, you know, like I take Knox to ice skating lessons and swim lessons at night. And, you know, it's, I suppose you call one of my hobbies is moving the cross-country jumps <laughs> on the schooling course around. Um, you know, I love the farm here. If I, you know work at small little projects around the place and uh, I'm lucky my my hobby is horses you know and I get paid for it so uh, I'm very very lucky and um, yeah I don't I don't really have time or energy I mean I do a fair bit of fox hunting in the winter November and December and I mean we're lucky here we've got friends that are not horsey you know that are farmers or Mm-hmm. You know that are in the area, neighbours and stuff with young kids, and um, I think it's important to try and then also just get away from the whole circus of <coughs> the eventing world of competitions and horses, mm-hmm. and you know, it, uh, I love it almost too much. I think it's important to get away from it now and then. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Boyd. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and thanks again to the sponsor of this episode, Dublin. Join us again in two weeks. Upcoming conversations are with Olympic show jumper Laura Kraut, husband and wife team Carlton and Tracy Brooks, and World Equestrian Games team gold medalist Adrian Sternlicht. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review the show. I'm Jocelyn Pierce, and you've been listening to the Practical Horseman Podcast.